I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, October 20th. We are approaching Mike Johnston's 100th day on the job as the mayor of Denver. It is on Wednesday, the 25th, and it has been a jam-packed three months for him, starting on day one. We are grateful here at PBS 12 that Mayor Johnston is joining us for this special edition of Colorado Inside Out to talk about how things are going. Mayor Johnston, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. The last time I saw you, you were candidate Johnson back oh, yes. in February when we had our forum over at the Botanic Gardens. So a lot's happened. How is it going for you? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's definitely a different world than the last time we saw each other. But uh, I, I love it. I love the job every single day. I feel very honored and blessed to get to do the work. Um, you have the chance to work with amazing partners on very big problems. And I think I feel like there is a real clear sense that you can actually dramatically move the needle on these hard problems and make real progress. And so uh, there is a lot to do, but it feels like a real great outcome for the work that we're doing right now. So I feel like just in watching you the last couple of weeks, you have had to focus on airport expansion plans. You've met with people at encampments. You've yeah. met with people who are going to have micro-communities move in. You've worked on hiring people. You've endorsed some DPS you know, candidates. You, you, you're on every kind of facet of city government, and you have a family. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems a little dizzying to me from an outsider. Uh, it is definitely, uh, the, there's never a dull moment, and you never have the same you know, challenge twice in the city. There, it's a complex range of issues, but I think what I love about it is a lot of those issues are interconnected, right? We know that our ability to help newcomer migrants that arrive be successful in integrating into the environment here is linked to our ability to help people that are unsheltered get access to housing, is linked to our ability to make sure that nurses and teachers and firefighters can access to housing, is linked to our ability to provide public safety all around the city. And so the nice thing is there are a lot of different problems, but they all interconnect. And so it feels like making progress on one makes progress on multiple. And so that's, that's the exciting part. Back in February, when we were talking with you here at PBS 12 for our Human Eye series, yeah. you were asked to give three words to describe Denver. <laughs> and back then, you said hopeful, vibrant, and concerned. Yeah. That was February. This is October. Are those choices of words still good ones for you? I actually like those. I, I stand by those. You know, I, I talked sometime on the campaign about this idea of an um, old mentor of mine had said to me, you know, when you're confronting hard problems, or you have to look at both the truth of where you are and the hope of what's possible. And we know there are some hard truths in the city. The city does face some real challenges that were true when we started. We know that we had historically high crime rates the last several years. We know we have 1,500 people that are unhoused in the streets of the city every day. That's 300% more than we had five years ago. We know we have a downtown with escalating commercial vacancy rates that makes us at risk for long-term economic challenges. And so those are all hard truths, but I actually think the hope gets even stronger. Each day, the more we see that it's possible to make an impact on these things, even something like homelessness, which you know we started with a plan to try to get a thousand people off the streets and into shelter in the, these first six months, which would be a historic success if we can accomplish it. We were very ambitious in that goal, but we had a basic belief that if we offered people access to housing, we could resolve two problems at once. We could both get people that are unhoused off the streets and into housing, get the support they need. And we could close those encampments, keep them closed, and reactivate the public spaces of the city for everyone who wants to use them. And we have really found that to be true. I mean, two weeks ago, we had a historic first where we, for the first time in Denver history, closed an encampment by moving all 83 of those people to housing. And what was exciting was 
100% of those people we reached out to all accepted housing. There wasn't a single one who said no. Uh, all of those folks are in housing, have stayed in housing now, and are successfully getting access to services. So, And then after that, we closed that neighborhood to encampments. We've kept it closed. There's no new camping at that site. And so we know there is a path here to make a real dramatic impact. We're just in the everyday effort of trying to find those units, bring them on, get them built, get them sited, and then get people moved into them. So you had that... Uh encampment closed down yeah. but then there was the other encampment on Sherman where people weren't taken to a hotel and then the yeah. one on 48th last week you decided oh we're not going to move everyone out right now yeah. from the outside it kind of looks like it's a disjointed process is it ever changing yeah so it's the the basic math to solve is uh you know the old process has been you just move encampments because the, you get to this place where they're unsafe, where there's a public health or safety risk, and people have to move them. But there was never a place for them to go before. Now with housing, we have places for them to go, but we don't have all the units online right now. Those were our first 80 units we opened. We have another 900 units to open, but those will take the next you know, 30, 60 days to get there. And so the challenge is in the short term, we have had some encampments where we've had explosions or we've had shootings or we've had rat infestations where even though we don't yet have the units available to move people into housing, we have to for public health and safety reasons uh, close or move those encampments. And so we've limited that to only places where we have public health risks, we have public safety risks, we have right-of-way infringements or we have private property that people need to access. And so we've tried to reduce the number of cleanups we have to do, but there are still times if there's a public health or safety risk, we have to do that even before we get the housing units available. You mentioned the fires. There was a fire this week by Curtis Park. Yeah. And one of our viewers, Marilyn, lives near Curtis Park, and yeah. she wants me to ask you, how is it going? How many people have been housed? And she said, because, Mayor, it appears that there are still many folks still living in encampments on the streets. And with the fires, yeah. I read deep, uh, Denver Fire Department says there have been 130 fires so far this year in encampment tents. Yeah, so uh, we, are, we are making great progress. And also, you know, for context, historically, when the city has tried to open one of these micro-communities, uh, I think the first time they cited one, it took three years to cite one micro-community with 40 units in it. We're trying to cite nine of them with 1,000 units in 90 days, which is obviously historically fast. But you still means for all of us who would like it to go faster, they're saying, why haven't all the encampments moved immediately? Um, we're just gated by the number of units we can acquire and, the, and how fast we can bring them on. Uh, again, this 1,000-unit uh, goal is very, very ambitious. But our target is to do that by the end of the year. So we still have another 75 days or so to go. I know for people that are living next to them or in them, that time feels like it's going slowly. We are moving at breakneck speed to try to get that done. Uh, but our goal is once we bring those units on, then we can close those encampments move people into housing all before the end of the year. Which will make people like Marilyn pleased that, you know, it's cleaning up in Curtis Park, but people in micro-community neighborhoods are concerned. You've been receiving some pushback. Yep. You spoke with Golden Triangle Neighborhood, and you made some adjustments to the plan there. Yep. But the Santa Fe, which is the first, the Santa Fe uh, drive, yep. that in, uh, in camp, uh, micro-community is the first one that's going to be open. How soon? Because I know we just started yeah. work on that last week. Or Yeah, you're right. Um, so I think this is the, and often I'll hear this in the same conversation. People will say to me, Mike, I'm really upset. Why are there people outside my house that are sleeping on the streets, that are might be using drugs, that are, you know, sleeping in front of someone's doorway or their business? Uh, and also, I'm worried about you opening a micro-community here. And what we see is those two things are connected. If we do nothing, what we do is we leave the most dangerous, most unsafe system for the city of all, which is folks living in these uns unsanctioned campsites with no security, no staffing, no support. 
By moving people to micro communities, what we have is the opposite. We actually have communities that have round-the-clock security, they have mental health services, workforce training, addiction supports, and they are incredibly safe. They're among the safest places in the city when we do them right. Those micro communities we have now, where we have sometimes, you mentioned the fires, we have often six, seven, eight thousand 911 calls a year to encampments in the city right now. Uh, they are the least safe place right now in the city for the residents living in the encampments mm -hmm. and for the folks living around them. In the micro community sites where we have around the clock staffing and support, one of the micro communities we have here in Denver for the last year had only three calls in an entire year. That's lower than almost any apartment building in the city. So what we know is it's literally one one thousandth of the safety risk to the city to move folks into micro communities. That's why we're doing it. Um, but we know people have fair questions about how they'll be structured, what the rules will be, how we make sure that we keep them safe. And we're really committed that we can do that. Uh, we have sites preparing to open up around the city. The Santa Fe site we've started construction on. But each of these sites, again, they've taken years in the past to construct these sites. We're trying to do them in the next 60 days. And so our goal is these sites will, almost all of them will open in December. December. Some residents, the neighbors, are concerned about who might be moving. Yep. Are there, um, like, let's say for sex offenders, are there yep. background checks? Like, all of us in our neighborhoods can go online and see if somebody yep. is living near us. Is that the case with, do you know who is going to be moving into these micro-communities? Yeah, this is another great example of why what we're proposing is much safer than the current scenario Denver has. Okay. If you have someone right now who is a sex offender who is living in an encampment, they might be living in your neighborhood and we would have no idea. Because if true. you are in a tent, you do not have a requirement to register because that's not a home. That is um, true. Once any one of these individuals move into any one of the micro-communities or a hotel site, that counts as a residence where now you would have to register after 14 days. And so if that were the case, they would then be required by law to register. If they register in that location, they, they would be noticed that they're there. Mm -hmm. And if they're in violation of any part of their order, if that's within a thousand yards of a school or close to a playground or anything that might be according to their violation of prohibition, they would have to move. Um, so the benefit is this actually forces registration, forces identification, and then forces intervention if necessary, which uh, won't be present at all if people are living on the streets in tents. You mentioned if, if people do have to move out. Um, John, one of our viewers, wrote to us, um, what will happen if someone um, is kicked out for bad behavior. Maybe not criminal behavior, but yeah. the rules of the micro community. Where do they go? Are they back on the streets? What yeah. happens to them? Uh, so this is a this is a healthy tension where we know the key is there are rules to all of these sites and people have to abide by the rules. There are okay. warrant checks before folks enter into the site, so that is also true. But yeah, you can't use drugs in public, you can't distribute, you can't uh, commit acts of violence, you can't harass people, any of those things like any other HOA. If you do that, you can either be charged and arrested or you can be removed from the site if you're not a safe participant. That's happened very rarely. We haven't had to do that yet in our site at Best Western. Um, but when it does happen, there are two options. If, it, if it's a crime, you would be charged. Uh, if it's a behavior violation, you can be removed and you may have to go to either a, a congregate shelter, like a traditional shelter site um, is often the place. Or we have some locations that we use people with, with higher acuity needs. If you have real mental health needs or profound addiction needs, we have places like the Solution Center uh, that can provide inpatient support for mental health needs. And so we do have other options. Denver Health sometimes takes people that are highly acute with uh, mental health needs or addiction-based needs. So we do have other options if they're that level of acuity. But what we know is these sites are very, very successful in meeting, call it 90% of the range of needs of mild, moderate, uh, addiction or substance use or um, or mental health needs, which is the great part about them. Okay, and with the dashboard where people can go online, yes. and every day I have noticed this week the number is ticking up of the amount yep. of people who are housed. 
is it achievable, although very commendable, is it achievable to get a house, a thousand people in housing uh, you in know, two and a half months? Uh, yeah, we believe in setting very ambitious goals. So we know we've set a goal that I think no city has reached before in this amount of time. So uh, we have a team working incredibly hard to do it. We're gonna give every last ounce of energy we can to get there. Knowing that it's not just about uh, the number, you know, for us it's about we know every single day there are folks living unsheltered on the streets whose lives are at risk. You know, I, I've mentioned multiple times in town halls, just since I've taken the oath of office, we've had more than 40 Denverites who've died outside on the streets of this city. You know, we never thought we'd raise our kids in a city where you say, yeah, baby, in, in, our, in our town, people just die outdoor on the streets every week, but that is what's currently happening. And so we know this is not just about uh, that number, it's about the lives of a thousand people who we can fundamentally change their path. And it's about all of our neighbors and our neighborhoods, like your viewer who wants to make sure her neighborhood is both free and safe for her and her kids and family to walk to work or walk to the playground or go to their local favorite business. We want to do both of those things, serve those who need us and also get back the public spaces that everyone can access. So if we, if, I'm thinking positive yes. for the city. If we don't get to a thousand or a thousand more in the next year, yeah. it, do you already have a plan B? I mean, so our our plan is we know that we're you know we have about 1,500 who are unsheltered right now, mm -hmm. um, and we're going to dedicate ourselves to getting those first thousand housed before the end of the year. Then in our budget for 2024, we've set a plan to house another thousand right. in 2024 because we know unfortunately there are more and more folks entering homelessness each day. Um, but we also have a plan to prevent people from entering homelessness in the first place. So we've put in a 500% expansion of the city's funding on rental assistance, which actually helps prevent people who are at risk of eviction from ever entering homelessness in the first place. We know it's not only the right humanitarian thing to do, it's just good fiscal policy for the city. Right now it costs us a couple of thousand dollars to keep someone housed. It costs us about $40,000 a year to support them once they become homeless. And so we'll focus on preventing the pipeline into homelessness as well as getting people out. Uh, if we don't reach 1,000, it won't be because the strategy isn't working. It'll just be because we need more units to bring on. We need more hotels, more leased units, uh, more micro communities to build. And so we're gonna keep pushing forward on those. We won't stop on that regardless. We know the strategy works. The only gating factor is getting the units up, getting them online, getting them ready to be occupied. And so that's where we're pushing hard right now. And at the same time, we have migrants coming here by the day yes. after crossing the US-Mexico border. And we've talked about how people who come to Denver are going elsewhere to meet up with family. Well, one of our viewers did write into us and said, what if people aren't here temporarily? Yeah. What happens to them? Because they have, it depends if it's a family or an individual, a certain amount of time they can stay in a shelter here. What happens yes. to them then if they don't leave? Yeah, um, we're working very hard on this every day. I've, I've spent time talking to the migrants that have arrived and they all have the same first question, which is, I don't need any help. I don't want any charity. I just want to know where I can get a job. I want to work. I'm here to work. I've traveled two, 3,000 miles through scorching heat to get here. All I want is a chance to pursue the American dream and get a job. And so, and I also get calls from CEOs and employers who will say, hey, I saw a bunch of migrants arrive today. Can I hire them? So what we have are folks here who want to work and employers who want to hire them. We have a federal government who said we can't do that. And so that's the problem we're trying to solve. I, I've met with Secretary Mayorkas, who's the head of Homeland Security, about this. Governor Polis and I pushed him hard to add more work authorization for folks that have arrived. We were very excited when a few weeks ago they offered temporary protective status to Venezuelans who arrived before July 31st. That's the largest population that's arriving here. They can now get access to work. That's a huge step forward. We want to do more. We want to be able to make sure the people that arrive can work. And even if you're here on an asylum claim, sometimes that can take four years to get that processed. So we want better and faster adjudication of asylum. 
We want more work authorization. Uh, we need more federal dollars to support. But if we can get people work authorization, they can be successful. If they can't, then unfortunately, even after we shelter people, they're off looking for a way to pay the rent or survive in a city where they can't work is very, very hard. Mm -hmm. So we think work authorization is the key to doing that. Um, working together with a coalition of five or six other mayors around the country to help uh, uh, lobby both the White House and the Congress on access and, um, and action here. And so working with the mayors of uh, D.C. and L.A. and New York and Chicago and El Paso and Houston to try to say we're all the ones running cities. We're most affected by this. We want to be part of the solution, but we need work authorization and dollars to make it happen. You mentioned how you've been working on the budget. You just resent your revised budget to the, yes. to the city council. And something has to be figured out in three and a half weeks, the budget for yes. the city does. Um, you talked about affordable housing and the yes. eviction rate uh, is going to go, they say, up to 12,000 come yeah. the end of the year. Um, you haven't given as much money as the city council would for that eviction relief. And I read in one of the articles is because you're concerned about we don't know what this migrant situation is going to be looking like and how it's going to affect our city and our budget. Yeah, so there, there are things. I'm totally aligned with the city council on how important this rental assistance mm -hmm. effort is. What I think is unfortunate is, um, you know, we have expanded the city's commitment by 500% on this number. Um, so we did $3 million last year. We're doing $15 million this year, which is great. The challenge, which the city council is worried about and I'm worried about, is we had about $15 million of state and federal support last year on this that has gone away. And so that's where we're risking the gap from what we want to do. Uh, and so what I've committed to the city council and we're going to work with our state legislative delegation and federal delegation on is we want to make this big expansion of our city commitment. And we want to really advocate at the state and federal level for more of that support to add to this uh, preventative measure because we do know uh, it saves people's lives and it also prevents people from getting uh, pushed into homelessness. But we have to also balance the budget, unfortunately. We, we can't print dollars like the federal government can. Uh, and we do have a reserve. And this year, what we're worried about is that reserve will be uh, called on to do things like support crises like the migrant uh, influx that we've had. The current, uh, the current case of that would, would grow dramatically over the next year. If we're at the same pace now we are for the next year, that'd be about a $100 million impact on our budget next year rather than the $20 million we've budgeted. So we both want to be strategic about all those things, and we also want to be cautious about how we make sure we have the reserves we need to solve crises that could be coming. And another crisis is the crime situation. Yes. Crime has grown throughout the metro area, but especially in Denver and downtown Denver. Yes. And a lot of our viewers have written in about what is your plan? And I know the plan is to add more police, but yep. that takes time. Yep. In the meantime, you know, we had, you know, shootings last weekend. Um, yep. Unfortunately, there'll probably be more coming the days ahead. Yes. And a lot of them are unsolved, and a lot of families are heartbroken. Uh, yeah, this is one where we have to face the, the hard truths. You know, the hard truths of the city are that we had historically high levels of crime in 2022, highest we've seen in 20 years of violent crime, property crime, drug crime. That is true. That's why we've taken historic efforts to address that. That's why we have proposed putting 167 more officers onto the street through our cadet classes. That will be the largest increase in about 20 years. But we've also focused on how we have the right responder to respond to the right issue at the right time. As someone who's done a lot of work in mental health and education in my life, there are a lot of times where if you have someone in a mental health crisis or at risk of substance misuse, the right responder is not a police officer. It's actually much better to be a STAR program uh, responder. That We've expanded that program. Our co-responder program, which is a mental health worker and an officer deployed together. So we do want to expand that. It also is why, Kyle, it ties all these pieces tie together. Right now, when we look at our homelessness challenge, 
in downtown Denver, where we're sitting today, 60% of the calls that we could get in downtown Denver on a given day are often to encampments. That means officers are spending a great deal of time responding to those situations, which make them less available to respond to other more significant needs. Our ability to help those individuals get into housing uh, and provide them support there and close those encampments also means we both add more officers and we free up more officer time to go to those places that are higher safety risks around the city. So we're going to do both and. And we're gonna specifically work on then how we activate uh, all of the downtown neighborhoods that have had dense encampments for a long period of time. We announced the program to do uh, a grant program to invite artists and nonprofits and small businesses to come to downtown and activate different parts of the city, whether you wanna bring a ballet troupe or your Shakespeare on the sidewalk or you wanna come do a pop-up bakery. We wanna be able to help activate those streets so they're not just free of encampments, they're actually full of life um, and full of joy because for us the opposite of crime is not safety, it's joy. And what we want back is that feeling in the city. Joy, absolutely. But there's a lot of frustration among existing businesses who are like, yep. help. Like, that's great. We want to reinvigorate downtown yep. with some cultural experiences or whatever events. But one viewer, Matthew, was saying, you know, I'm looking at my bottom line. Do I need to hire private security because my customers yeah. and my employees are afraid to go out into our parking lot because he yeah. has had people come in who are maybe mentally not aware, use his yeah. parking lot as a restroom or doing drugs. And when they call yes. police, the police are overtaxed. So you hear from businesses like, okay, we don't have as many people coming here. People who are coming here are afraid about what's happening around them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I completely empathize with that because I was the CEO of a business in downtown for three years before I ran for mayor and I had that same experience in Union Station where we had our own private security that we did have that felt unsafe to even keep the building safe because the risks were so high. And so um, this is why uh, we've done a couple of things here. One, this is why we are really focused on creating an integrated enforcement response in downtown that both includes officers, but also uh, combines a lot of the existing forces. We have nonprofits that are doing outreach street by street. We have private security. We have safety office. We have housing team members that have all been working in a somewhat uncoordinated fashion. What we're going to do is integrate and align all of those responses so we can both move out encampments, help be able to activate those streets, help provide more supervision, more visibility, more security to those sites. And that's also why uh, we're working on how we can help support those businesses in the short term to make sure they are financially sustainable and supportive while we're getting uh, folks that are unhoused into housing. We know businesses are struggling in the, in the moment, particularly struggling with the impact of encampments. It's the combination of covid plus a mental health crisis, plus an addiction crisis, plus the housing crisis. And so we want to both get those businesses short-term support, but really get long-term activation that includes both increased public safety response. That's one of these the things these 167 new officers do is increase our ability to respond more effectively and urgently yeah. to those calls and to get back a sense of visibility and public safety in all those neighborhoods so folks feel safe to walk anywhere in the city. Yeah, I feel like businesses are also stressed because landlords, a lot from out of state, are yep. jacking up the, you know, their their rents. And, you know, unemployment, I mean, not unemployment, minimum wage is going to go up again in the yep. new year. It's a lot. And then yep. worry about security. Yeah, we think that those are, that is exactly the crucible we find ourselves in right now. And what we think is you have to at attack these one at a time okay. and then, but do them in, in order. So what we're doing is first focused on getting folks off the streets and into housing, okay. closing encampments and keeping them closed. Second, on then expanding public safety enforcement around the city, putting in new officers, putting in more aligned enforcement, more visible safety in those places. We will then step in on how we support those people with the most acute mental health and addiction needs. And unfortunately, those folks are the ones committing the most crimes. 
and speak out of their addiction need. And so we'll intervene with those individuals and help get them into treatment, both inpatient and outpatient treatment, as a key intervention in, in addition to housing. And then we focus on the economic reactivation of the downtown and the neighborhoods. But we think you have to do all of those in sequence. Right now, if we try to get one of those landlords or one of those businesses to re-up on a three-year lease right now, and they don't feel safe for their employees to work in downtown, they're not going to re-up on that lease. We have to both get folks access to housing, increase public safety, support and intervene on those folks that have mental health and addiction needs, and revive the city with stimulation and support so that then all of those things work in concert. We think if you do all those together, you get a dramatically revived city center. So realistically, when do the businesses getting the revival support, When does how far away is that? Oh, so we'll start all those in sequence. So we're okay. working on all of those now. We've started, we'll, we'll work on starting to support businesses in the next few weeks around okay. strategies to get them through this short-term challenge. Okay. Um, we're working our ready on uh, activation and enforcement with both police department and other partners in the city center. We'll start doing that. As we move each encampment, we'll activate that region where we've closed that encampment to keep it closed. That's a combination of arts and venues activity, of nonprofit partners, of security, that's private security and public safety. So you'll see us activating more and more of these regions as we move people. The biggest felt uh, change will be in December when we bring on the largest number of units because right now we have three, four, five, six hundred people that are encamped in downtown. When we bring on 80 units, we can't move all of those. When we bring on a thousand units, we could move all of those. And so that's why the target is so important as it both helps support those folks that are struggling, also actually helps uh, get all of those neighborhoods that right now are carrying so much of the weight of encampments um, closed to future camping. And December is such a big time for downtown Denver. So many people come it into is. Denver to celebrate the holiday season, to see the parade, to go out to dinner and Christmas parties. Yes. So it's a big time. And I know, is it 2025 now, the 16th Street Mall will be finished? Uh, that is the final timeline, yes. Um, that was not a project I started, but I inherited it. And we are pushing to make sure we finish it on time, on budget, as quickly as possible. The convention center will be finished uh, in the first part of 2024. So that will be done, which is great. That activates a lot more convention business. And we're working to activate 16th Street Mall in the, in the short term. What we know is this will be a real gem when it's back open. We have to push hard to get through that stage, and that's why uh, reactivating the rest of the surrounding neighborhoods is going to be so important. You must look through a crystal ball to see what Denver's going to look like in a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, that's the part that gives me so much hope, is when you think about what it's going to mean to have all the construction done at DIA, so you have actually smooth, easy access to security. You land safely in a beautifully remodeled Great Hall. That's still a long way away. That's still a long way away, but we do have secure, those new security lines open That's up true. in 2024, so you'll now have expedited security process. You think about a, a completed in, uh, 16th Street Mall, a completed convention center. You think about all of downtown where folks that were previously unhoused are now in housing. You have activated businesses, you have people that are back in person, uh, and you have no one that has to sleep on the streets in downtown Denver. There would be no city in America like that. It's a lot of work to get from here to there, but we see a vision of what's possible that is inspiring in the midst of the hard times. In the meantime, it is tough. And education and DPS is tough right now as well. Yes. There's a lot going on, and you have chosen to endorse some candidates, which isn't odd for yeah. a mayor to do, yeah. um, candidates running for um, the DPS school board. Why did you decide to get involved in that race? Yeah, you know, when I was on the campaign trail, it was often the second or third issue I'd hear every night in people's living rooms around the city is they were really concerned uh, and worried about the path of DPS, and they wanted to make sure we could 
not get back a great city without a great school district. I agree with that. Um, and I think part of that challenge was that they felt like there was a board that was not fully functioning the way that it could, and they wanted to see people that had both experience and expertise and community voice and were really collaborative problem solvers, because I think that is, uh, I don't manage the school district, I don't run it. I'm a voter who gets the vote on a school board members, and I am a parent who has concerns. And so for me, uh, I had said I would step into these races. I have stepped in because I think these races are important, and I think there are really great candidates uh, who have a chance to help uh, support the district's work long term and get a really close partnership with the city and the school district, and I'm excited to see them succeed. As a former educator, though, you have a lot of insight into it, and you have chosen uh, candidates who are considered reform candidates, perhaps not what the teachers' union was looking forward to. So it's kind of a different viewpoint that you're putting out there. I think this is more a matter of candidates that have experience. And like the candidates I've endorsed have more than 65 years of education experience in this city and this state. They're people that have led schools, led districts, led classrooms, and delivered real results. I don't think, I think this is really about people's, what I hear about is about, can we deliver public safety in our schools? Can we get great school leadership? Can we feel like we're going to have um, responsive feedback to parents when they have it? These are not big, structural questions, they're fundamental customer service questions, um, and they're the core ingredients of things that people care the most about, like public safety. So I view these as really experienced, uh, pragmatic leaders who can run a very complex and large organization. That's what this job is. Um, this is not uh, this is not one where for ideologues or for advocacy. It's one for governance, and I think we're looking for people that can actually govern. So I I worked very closely with um, teachers unions on a number of issues, including housing, including homelessness, including public safety. They're key allies on a lot of these issues. I think there uh, will be I think we'll both be excited to partner together. Whatever happens on the other side of this election, but I view this as really not a question of what's your political ideology and education is, it's what your demonstrated record is of accomplishment on solving hard problems and being a practitioner. It is so vital. It is so vital to improve DPS. When I moved here 20 some odd years ago, it was yeah. it was amazing school district. Like yeah. you wanted to get into DPS schools. Yeah. You know, you wanted your yeah. kids to go there and there's just been a disarray over the years. It's just not the same and it, it matters. Our kids future is yeah. depending on this. It is the single most important driver for our long-term economic success and our long-term success of our city is this has to be a place where you want to raise kids. It has to be a place where those kids grow up and want to stay and live in the city and contribute to the city. Uh, and at the heart of that is a great school district. I believe we can get that back again. I think it just requires the uh, right partnerships, the right leadership, the right commitment, and I'm confident we can do that. Um, we talked about a lot going forward, um, but we received um, a couple of um, emails from people who have lived here for decades and mm -hmm. lived here for a long time yes. and understand that you have a lot of issues to deal with right now. But back in the 80s and 90s, Denver was a beautiful city and there were a lot of people talk about the parks were great and there wasn't yeah. trash on the streets. And they really care about, you know, how our city looks and attractiveness. In 97, we had the world, the summit of the eight World Economic Summit. Yes. Would Denver be considered for something like that right now? Oh, I think absolutely. We're gonna, bid, so? we're gonna bid for and fight for all of those things. Um, and I think that, but I wanna come back to these folks' core concern. I 100% agree. I think that we are gonna take pride in every single block of the city and every single public bench and every single park and every single right away. I mean, when I became a school principal, it was the first thing I did is you walk into a public high school, the one that I ran and, you know, struggling high school, lots of challenges and kids walk in and you see graffiti all up and down the hallways. And that is the first 
thing you communicate to kids is how do we treat you as scholars? If it feels like a prison, you behave like someone that lives in one. If it feels like an academic institution, you respond that way. And so we spent the first two weeks covering every bit of the building floor to ceiling with student artwork, which gives a sense of beauty of ownership of place. We have to have that same sense of care for every block of the city because that's what we communicate not just to our residents, to our visitors, um, to our family members. And so I think, yes, it does matter. I, pick up trash from on the street every day because it's our city. I always said, my dad used to say, you know, if it's if it's your home, it's always your trash. This is our home. And so we have a real commitment to making sure it feels like a home we're proud of. Every week on Colorado Inside Out, we end the show with a lightning round with the highs and lows of the week. And we always start off with the negative so we can end on a positive note. Great. So let me ask you something negative, a disappointment, a thing that really irks you, either with how the job is going with the city really with anything? A low for the week? Um, a low for the th 100 days, oh, whatever. A low, a low for the 100 days. Um, uh, I, think, um, I think a low for the 100 days is um, that the migrant crisis is one that feels like is a problem we can solve, and we don't have the tools right now to solve it. Uh, so it's frustrating for me to feel like each day, I know what we need to do to fix this problem, and we don't have the capacity to fix it because we can't grant people the right to work legally, which is what they want to do. So that's one that I think feels the most frustrating to me because the, the rest of these problems are mostly within our own control, and if we can't fix them, it's our own problem. Um, that's one where I feel like we can see the answer, we just can't find a way to get to the answer. So that's one that has been the most frustrating and something that is amazing and awesome and great in the last um, 100 days? I mean, one of them was I got to spend yesterday with a guy named Brandon Hughes, who um, Denver native, grew up here, and he was there for us when we announced this. The White House came to announce a partnership with the city as one of the model cities for how we can take on homelessness. But Brandon was one of the people who was living in an encampment in the city when I took office, um, struggling for years, and he was one of those people who we were able to house when we closed the encampment on 8th and Logan and moved him to the Best Western. And he's now in a training, getting his commercial, getting his CDL. He's on a path to get a job. He's back up on his feet. Uh, he feels like he's on top of the world. He said it's the nicest place he's lived in a long, long time, and he feels a real sense of hope. And he's been treated with dignity at every turn, and he has a sense of optimism and possibility. Um, and seeing Brandon yesterday just made me realize, like, we can pull this off. There are wonderful people in this city who are, want our support, and when we give them that support, their lives are going to turn around, and the city's going to turn around. So that, for me, is the real source of hope. We need more of them, more yes. Brandons. <laughs> we yes. do. And your two boys turned 16. That was also a very big day. That, that was both, as you know, part wonder and part sadness. 16 feels very old. I, I feel now the clock, the shot clock on on how many days I have with them left at home before graduation, but so excited for them. A little sad for myself that I miss them being eight. Do you have much time at home? Will you give out candy on Halloween? Absolutely, we will. will? Yes. You have my the time? My, I do, yes. My daughter's very committed. She wants to bring back the tubes from COVID. Remember you have to put the candy in the tube <laughs> and it goes all the way down the, not because we need to, because it was a fun intervention. So yeah, we spent, I will send you the photos. We spent a very, very long hours on the Halloween decorations in front of our house. We're quite proud of them. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Mayor, for joining us you this bet. week. Great and to see you. For talking with us about how it's going thus far. We'll check in every 100 days. No, uh, just I kidding. would look forward to it. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much. And thank you all for watching this week on this special edition of Colorado Inside Out. Not only can you watch it on our YouTube page again and share with your friends, but also we have a podcast, which you can hear on Spotify. So share with friends. We all need to know what is going on in our city to feel connected and to make it better. So thank you for your time. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week here on PBS 12.